Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. My name is Valentina Gritti. I'm the podcast host and the global community and project manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. This is the second episode dedicated to the On My Plate Challenge, a six-week challenge in which we can all act collectively for a better food system. If you haven't signed up for the challenge yet, you can do it on onmyplate.slowfood.com. Today, you are going to listen to a whole episode dedicated to clean food. We will learn what clean food means with three special hosts from Cuba, Italy and Burkina Faso. So let's meet our guest now. Melissa Relova Posada is a 20 years old girl from Cuba and she's part of the slow food community Finca Vista Hermosa, which is her family project. She's now attending the third year at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Pollenzo, Italy. Melissa will tell us about how the USA embargo influenced the agricultural landscape in Cuba. The second host is Alberto Leone. Alberto is an Italian beekeeper belonging to the Slow Food Presidium of the Alpine High Mountain Honey. A presidium is a network of producers that sustain quality products at risk of extinction. They protect unique regions and ecosystems, recover traditional processing methods, safeguard native breeds and local plant varieties. Alberto is an organic beekeeper and he will tell us about how honey can be clean and what are the difficulties that bees are facing nowadays. The last speaker of today will be Jean-Marie Koalga. Jean-Marie is a social educator as a profession and is the spokesperson of the slow food community La Firibo, which means healthy nourishment, in Bangare, Burkina Faso. He is also national coordinator of Slow Food Burkina Faso and international counselor of Slow Food International for West and Francophone Africa. Today, he's going to tell us about his experience as an educator to promote clean food in a challenging environment as the one in Burkina Faso. So, we're going to talk about policy, agroecology, beekeeping, education and much more. But first of all, let's start this episode, like the last one, with a simple question. What is an important dish for you and why? My favorite food, I would have to say, is what we call masitas de cerdo criollo. In English, it will be sauteed Cuban pork. And this is the traditional meal for every festivity and special occasion in my country. Um, we eat it usually in uh, um, New Year's Eve, your birthday, Christmas. And we accompany it by rice with black beans, yuca con mojo, which is also called cassava. And I make salad with the vegetables that are in season at the moment. Um, all of the ingredients of this uh, dish and the accompaniments are locally produced. So this is amazing. This dish is highly important to me and I will say to every Cuban too. Because it's made with cerdo criollo or Cuban pork. That has a particular flavor and tenderness, thanks to the fact that it's raised by locals in their farms, and even sometimes um, it's raised it's raised in the backyards of their houses. Um, they feel that they feed them with palmisha, which is the fruit of the palm tree, um, making it distinctively delicious uh, when I compare it to industrial pork meat. 
Il piatto più importante per me è un piatto che si può definire un piatto buono. A plate that is important for me is what I define as good food. For good, I mean good for the community, for the environment and for my own body. A good example are vegetable soups with legumes, which have a lower environmental impact compared to animal proteins. And they can anyway provide balanced nutrients to our body. So if this food is also produced in a fair way by paying the producers, the farmer, the correct amount, then we can say it's a good food also for the humankind. Corretto per l'ecosistema e per l'umanità. Mon plat préféré c'est vraiment le tout avec la sauce d'oseille. Thank you. My favorite plate is a traditional dish called to avec la sauce d'oseille. The to is a dish prepared with millet or sorghum flour, a sort of polenta, let's say, and it's accompanied by a sauce made of sorrel. The sorrel is a local vegetable typical in Burkina Faso, and the sauce is made with these vegetables together with crushed peanuts and minced millet or sorghum grains. The sauce is cooked on a stove by adding karité butter. So this is the sauce d'oseillère ready to be eaten with the toe. I assure you this combination is super interesting. Let's now go and meet Melissa Relova and let's learn more about the agricultural landscape in Cuba. Melissa, in your context in Cuba, what are the current agricultural challenges? In Cuba, we do not have the ability to ecologically self-manage um, our own resources to achieve sustainable agriculture, mainly due to the lack of economic inputs um, that are hampered by the current position we're in as a country under blockage of the U.S. government. There is also a high percentage of elements that are important, and this causes to, to have little to no control over how clean, good, and fair these products are. When we talk about the products that we do not import, the ones that we produce in the country, they usually have a very short supply chain, which is good for when it comes to traceability, but not at all for when it comes to labeling, as it is mainly farmers or intermediates the ones selling in markets with the simple um, artisanal packagings and labels that include uh, no proper information on what its content is. And how are you responding to these challenges? Can you maybe give us the example of your farm? We're overcoming these challenges by searching for sustainable variants on how to produce seeds, fertilizers, and biopesticides, while trying to depend as least as possible from external sources and finding solutions of what we already have as a result of our productions, thanks to our team of technicians and professionals. This is evidenced in our local farm project, where we have an artisanal production of charcuterie and cheeses elaborated with goat and cow milk. Um, here we also use the manure produced by our animals not only as a fertilizer for our soils, but also as a biogas thanks to a recent biodigester that was installed to create biofuel to be used in our own community. The excess whey from the production of our cheeses is also repurposed as a complement of the forage that is given as food to the livestock of the farm, um, mainly to pigs. So this is not, we're trying to have as, as least food waste as possible. 
We also consider that it's important to learn uh, since we're young about these challenges and how to achieve sustainable agriculture in our country. And that's why we also have uh, didactic activities and instructive talks that are given to the students of the surrounding schools of our farm so that they see how it is possible to have a good, clean and fair agriculture. In this case, um, one of the main didactic activities we do is that we make a contest with the kids where they have to milk the cows and the sheep and, and the goats, sorry. And they uh, make a contest and they, they get super excited about it and excited to learn more about agriculture. And they end up, most of them, in the career of agriculture. And me as an individual, I try to buy as few imported products as possible from uh, big supermarkets. And I try to focus mainly on getting my food supply from local markets where I can find locally produced vegetables, fruits, meats, um, among others, uh, directly from the market, the farmer or an intermediate. Um, and that gives me the trust that I know where it comes from, how it was made. Um, and it also helps me to mm, help the economical development of my society and to mm, kind of alleviate these challenges of the agroecology in Cuba. And how has agroecology been supported by the government in Cuba? Agroecology is a holistic approach to agriculture. It takes into account traditional knowledge, local varieties, ecological practices, and the social and economical development of the communities involved. The government of Cuba has been interested in the development of agroecology, moving away from the use of chemicals and abrasive techniques. Um, this is why they created the urban and suburban agriculture movements, which uh, promotes the use of agroecology as an alternative to the development of massive scale agriculture. Um, as a country, there are new policies that actually are being made this year, referring to agroecology to ensure that this agri-food sector progressively contributes to the country's balance of payments, um, to stop being a net importer of food and reduce the high dependence on financing that today is covered with the income of other sectors. They emphasize to reduce unproductive land and increase the yields through diversification, rotation, and polyculture, while promoting the efficient use of organic fertilizers and biofertilizers and biopesticides. We can see a political commitment from their part to emphasize the conservation and racial use of natural resources as oils, waters, beaches, atmospheres, forests, and biodiversity, as well as the promotion of the use of different renewable sources of energy, mainly biogas, uh, hydraulic, biomass, solar, and others, prioritizing those that have the greatest economic effect, of course. Thank you, Melissa. So in a way, we can say that there are a lot of negative aspects of the embargo, but also something positive. The lack of resources, such as chemical inputs, on which conventional agriculture relies, brought the Cubans to come up with more sustainable alternatives. It's a very interesting case study. 
But now let's go to my own country, to Italy, to meet Alberto Leone, who is waiting for us at the foothills of the Alps. Alberto, could you tell us which challenges is apiculture facing? L'apicoltura oggi sta facendo fronte a molte problematiche. Nowadays, beekeeping is facing a lot of problems, but if you look at them, you can get that they all derive from the careless exploitment of nature by humans. One of the problems are pathogens. There are some pathogens that arrive from foreign countries due to the globalization. This brought to a high rate of deaths among our bees, who cannot defend themselves from something they don't know. The use of chemicals such as herbicides and fungicides is poisoning for bees, which most of the time die and some other times get intoxicated. This intoxication is sometimes difficult to identify, so you have weak bee families that find it hard to survive winters and that get sick of the other illnesses because their immune system is weakened by agrochemicals. Another problem is extensive cultivations, which deprive us from amazing landscape and took away a source of food from the bees. Fortunately, the place where I live is not suitable for extensive agriculture, so things are a bit better for us. For the slow food presidium of honey, I take bees to the high mountains. Here, the main problem is the depopulation. In any case, I think producing high mountains honey is a very pleasant activity. It helps preserve the ecosystem and makes me feel proud. And the honey that is produced is for sure cleaner compared to one of the flatland. So let me tell you a few words about why the population in the mountains is a problem. When transhumans, the seasonal movement of herds between high and low pastures, was widespread, even bees took advantage of it, as the management of mountain pastures was beneficial not only for livestock, but also for the local vegetation. Today the Alps have become depopulated and the high pastures are less cared for so that many plants can no longer find their preferred habitat. Something that is more positive is that the unpolluted mountain ecosystems support the production of high-quality honey, even if in small quantities. The Presidium aims to revive and enhance Alpine high mountain honeys, the result of hard work of beekeepers who move among the mountain pastures to position their hives near the best blooms. Nomadic beekeeping in the mountains cannot compete with sedentary beekeeping in terms of volume, but the result is excellent honey of the very highest quality. And Alberto, how are you responding to all these challenges? For example, with your own company and also with the network of the Slow Food Presidium. Based on the problem I mentioned, we need first of all to join force against the tendency of the common agricultural policy, which make farmers and beekeepers make choice that we can consider without any sense. Another solution on a more practical level is to look for fields where the bees can live in a more pleasant way. The same way that shippers do with their flock when they go look for 
green grass. People may think that uh, beekeepers move their bees to other space in order to increase honey production. In reality, these two things go together. When a bee collects honey, it is doing the things that it likes most. A bee that stays within its home without the possibility of going to fetch pollen is getting weaker and poorer and it must be fed sugar in order to keep it alive. So in the end, the interests of the bee and the beekeeper are the same. Sometimes beekeepers are pictured as uh, some sort of killers or as people who makes bees suffer. For sure, bees in nature will have live better, but that kind of nature doesn't exist anymore. If you free a bee into nature nowadays, it means killing air. It is not able to defend itself from the pathogens and it would be able to find enough food. So it's not crazy, but we are indeed helping them to survive in a world that is not the best for them. The Presidium is supporting us in our work by sharing knowledge around the honey and supporting the recognition of its value, which reflects into an economic value as well. It makes people understand that this honey helps preserve some depopulated areas in the mountain and that we are doing much higher effort with less output compared to people in the flatland. It sounds scary, poor little bees. And Alberto, sorry for this question that may sound obvious, but what does it mean to be an organic beekeeper? Because I know in general terms the difference between organic and conventional agriculture, as well as for farming, but how do you do it with bees? My company is called Biella Miele and I work there together with two other beekeepers. It's an organic honey company. Being an organic beekeeper means, first of all, using clean wax. The house of the bees is a number of cells within the wax. Conventional beekeepers use wax that is contaminated with the phytochemicals or other products that they use for the bees. We don't. Having a dirty wax means weakness in the bees starting from the moment when they are larves. So for us, it was easy to show organic because it's in line with the way we live our daily life. Unfortunately, bureaucracy is not always easy to put off, especially for those who spend most of their time on the fields. Another difficulty in it at least is that organic honey is not considered of higher value compared to the conventional one. This comes from the wrong belief among the consumers who think that honey is always a cleaner product. In reality, it's not like that at all. But apparently, we haven't been able to communicate this in message properly. I want to keep producing organic honey because I like to do it this way. And as long as I can have my costs covered, I'm happy. So if we buy conventional honey, we risk eating pesticides, herbicides. Mmm, nice. And Alberto, out of curiosity, does honey have a seasonality? Sovente si parla del miele come di un prodotto con una sua stagionalità come consumo. We often talk about honey as a seasonal product. I must say that this was especially true in the previous years. In the latest period, there has been a shift in the consumer habits. So honey is eaten all year long, maybe with exception of the hottest months of the years. Also, the global COVID pandemic brought an increasing number of consumers to look for healthy products. 
among each honey. So despite the general crisis, there has been an increase in demand for honey, especially for a certain type of honey produced by small-scale local beekeepers. I was very happy because honey is a type of food that can be consumed at any moment and with a lot of benefits. In Italy, we are quite good beekeepers and we produce a lot of local honey from a single species of flowers. So under that point of view, I would say we are going towards a positive direction. Okay guys, so as of today, let's all get some nice organic honey from a local small-scale beekeeper to boost our immune system. And now let's move to Africa, to Burkina Faso, to have our final conversation of today with Jean-Marie Koalga. Jean-Marie, what's the agricultural context like in Burkina Faso? So if we look at the agricultural context in Burkina Faso, we can say that it can be analyzed on three to four levels. The first thing to say is that the agriculture is really dependent on the rainy season, which lasts only four months in the year, from June to September. So it's basically only during these four months that the peasants are on the fields for agriculture. During the dry season, when there is no more rain, we do some gardening. So from October to May, the second thing that affects agriculture in Burkina Faso is climate change. In particular, the irregularity of the rains. This bad trend is a big threat that makes agriculture vulnerable. The third thing is the use of chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides and GMOs, together with the high yields varieties. Sometimes politicians say they are useful to tackle climate change, but that's just their way to influence agriculture without thinking about the real consequences. All these factors represent a threat to the local seeds varieties. That's because all the chemicals, GMOs and improved varieties are the tendency to replace the local seeds. But these seeds are part of the local farming traditions and thus of the local food culture and diet. It's a very unfortunate situation for Burkina's agriculture. And an additional consequence to the introduction of chemicals is impoverishment of the soil, which then threatens food security. So when the soil is poor, people don't know how to cultivate it anymore and they have to migrate. When people don't have any land to cultivate, they migrate. And of course, this migration causes conflicts when it comes to looking for a new place to stay, a new land to cultivate, which belongs to other communities. So to sum up, in Burkina Faso, agriculture is challenged by the seasons and by climate change, which leads to the introduction of new chemicals and varieties, which then brings to soil poverty and loss of food sovereignty. So the situation is very concerning and it deserves to be considered in order to introduce sustainable and long-term solutions. And what's your experience as an educator and why do you choose to provide your students with practical agroecological tools related to their contexts? As an educator, I have carried out various activities with adults to raise awareness about the local critical situation and regarding sustainable development and about biodiversity. We have also been doing some training with school children, in particular by means of the project 10,000 Gardens in Africa by Slow Food. That is to promote good, clean and fair food and preserve biodiversity. But what's the most important thing about those actions? First of all, to make sure people are aware of the agricultural difficulties we are facing nowadays. Secondly, we want to boost traditional behavior and so adapt the current national and regional policies. 
And I know it's not easy, but this doesn't mean we don't have to try to change the current damaging practices and policies. So we must raise awareness among people. In addition to this, it's important to make people understand the particularities of each environment. In fact, the problem related to agriculture depends on each specific territory. So when people understand what is good where they are, then they will be on the correct path. In this context, the choice of practicing agroecology is very important in order to preserve biodiversity, restore the soils and allow agriculture to last on long terms. Biodiversity is a must in order to allow sustainable development and food sovereignty. So educate people to understand the general situation as well as to analyze their local reality is really important and it allows them to be able to make choices. In the moment in which we offer concrete agroecological tools, we look at the traditional local knowledge. Then we consider natural inputs such as organic manure and natural practices to manage weeds, which do not harm the soil but rather restore the soil. Normally, agroecological practices are traditional practices that were already there, but we have the tendency to set aside. So we need to raise awareness about the fact that we already have this knowledge, that is ours and the people can put it into practice to face climate change and restore the soil, and thus live without problems. We are aware that our role as educators is very important and we hope that we can help support our community in improving the local agricultural context. So Jean-Marie is also talking about the project of the Slow Food Gardens in Africa. And this is a project that focuses on raising awareness among young generations about the importance of food biodiversity and access to healthy and fresh food. But it's also about training a network of leaders to become aware of the value of their land and their culture so that they can serve as protagonists for the change and the continent's future. Thank you so much, Jean-Marie, for being so clear and also for sharing with us your passion and determination to fight for a better future. I hope that with this podcast we can help spread the word about what is happening in Burkina Faso as well as in other African countries and not only. Now, before ending the episode, I would like to ask our guests to do a last round and answer to this final key question. What is clean food for you in your context? Clean food, in my opinion, is a term that I use to describe foods that are consumed and produced in a way that does not cause any harm to the environment, to the animal welfare, or our health. It also means that it has a reduced carbon footprint and a reduced greenhouse gas emission. Um, that there was no usage of chemicals, antibiotics, or GMOs and that is mainly locally produced, and if not, it must be easily traceable and correctly labeled. It also must give great importance to the techniques of cultivation, the breeding of animals, the marketing, and sustainable consumption. Each step on the food production chain should preserve the ecosystem and diversity while protecting the health of the consumer and the producer. 
cibo pulito è un cibo che non crea grosso impatto. It's a food that has a low impact in all sense on our mother earth. So it must have an environment footprint as low as possible and it must generate a number of fair relationships where the producers are paid enough. Sometimes it takes a personal effort to understand what clean food means because we need to look at all the steps of the food chain that a product goes through. So we need to become critical and be able to make a choice, which is as much independent as possible. We need to keep in mind that pleasure alone is not enough, but our choice must embrace different aspects. For me, an alimentation propre is defined at two For me, a clean diet can be defined on two levels. First of all, it's a diet based on the respect of the natural processes involved in the food along all the chain, from its production to its consumption, passing by the transformation and conservation. So it respects all the rules of nature. The second point is that a clean diet should not represent any harm for the man who eats it, nor for the animals or nature. Nature should be protected by producing this food. Biodiversity should be enhanced so that it can be possible to keep producing such food. So for me, only when food respects all the natural processes and it's not harmful, then we can call it clean food. This series of the podcast is organized on the occasion of Terra Madre 2020, the biggest event that the slow food movement organizes every two years. This edition, due to the global pandemic, will have a big digital part and you can find the whole program at the link on the podcast description. Also, if you like this podcast and you want to support the project and get access to extra materials, you can become one of the patrons of Slow Food Youth Network on patreon.com slash join slash Slow Food Youth Network. This month you will find in Patreon the original Italian interview of Alberto and the French interview of Jean-Marie. Thank you for listening. I am Valentina Gritti and this is the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. Ciao!